Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. As for you, my fine friend, you're a victim of disorganized thinking. Look, wait Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. This is our first podcast, and we should maybe say a few words about what it is that we're doing, not that either of us really know, and and why. Yeah, I think that the that the the motivation behind this was that you're a philosopher and I'm a psychologist, and uh, there's increasing overlap in the two fields, so much so that, that we met at conferences and we've been talking now for a few years and every time we talked um we it was i think quite entertaining for me at least to hear you say the crazy things you say and uh maybe you felt the same way and I never said a crazy thing but yeah go ahead <laughs> so it was all pure pure reason uh and and i think that that we thought it might be fun to to kind of translate this into a podcast what reality it was just the thought that maybe we should have had a mic when we were having some of those some of those uh, conversations, and so we hope. Yeah, that- I mean, I'm, so I'm a big fan of podcasts in general. Podcasts about movies, podcasts about sports. I, and I'm I equally noticed addicted. that there's a little bit of a gap in philosophy and psychology. Not that there aren't podcasts, but there aren't the ones where it's just like two guys who are who are talking very informally, like they would in a bar, like they would in a coffee shop um like they would after a cocaine binge or something like that right. pretty much and, any drug nowadays and, it's like tylenol pm and like sudafed you know <laughs> is that a good combination <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like my speedball <laughs> so i i mean i i you know the a lot most of the philosophy and psychology podcasts as opposed to the film and sports ones seem to be more of the itunes you kind of deal uh, right. where it's to teach people and we should and, say that you we are not in any way teaching <laughs> yeah we are not here to teach you if you learn from us then it's not just a side effect <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you're going to need to seek help. Right. So, uh, so basically, I think we hope you enjoy the conversations as much as we have. Let's just go right into it. Today's topic is free will and moral responsibility, something both of us work on in our respective domains, an issue uh, I think both of us care about a lot. Um, That's right. I've actually changed my view on free will and especially moral responsibility since in the last five or six years. That's uh, really interesting because and, – and I'm always sort of heartened to hear when people uh, at, at, as long in the tooth as uh, you and I are at this point uh, change their minds about something. Um, it's long, illustrious careers. That's right. Uh, so – 
so uh, I take it that you used to uh, believe something that's wrong, and now you believe something that's right. Well, I used to believe that the answer to this question about free will and moral responsibility was pretty obvious. I just was a skeptic about it. I was a full-fledged denier of free will and a full-fledged denier of moral responsibility. I thought it was impossible for people to deserve blame or and praise. And it's really on the responsibility question that I've changed my view. And uh, really, that's the question I find most interesting for reasons that we'll talk about. And part of the reason that I changed my view, I think, might be, if you're looking at my psychology, is that I tend to be a contrarian and uh, and these days everybody's denying free will and moral responsibility. So, All of a sudden, it just started happening, you're right? Like a I, hipster philosopher, like it's, I, it's just too it's just too trendy now. Yeah, exactly. It's like a band, you know, a band that uh, you discovered. <laughs> When they were doing demos in their basement, and now all of a sudden they're on MTV, and you kind of get a little snide about it. Right. But let, I, I want to talk about this because it really does seem like every day, or at least every week, some new scientist uh, is coming out a, a, and telling us the cold, hard truth that there's no free will, that it's an illusion. Um, Jerry Coyne. And I'm gonna, I want to talk about his article. Sam Harris just wrote a book, same thing. Uh, Coin was sort of – he did it around New Year's. He was taunting USA Today readers about their New Year's resolutions, saying you didn't really choose them. You're not really oh, going to choose – Of all uh, the people to taunt, you know? I just – it's pick know, on someone your own size, USA Today readers. Can't. I mean unless you're in a motel and they slide it under your door. I, yeah. I just don't see – yeah. But. <laughs> Uh, I do like that kind of weather map that they have in the back. <laughs> so Harris is calling free will a delusion. Uh, it's not only an illusion for Sam Harris. It's a delusion, right? It's a delusion, a, right? right. Yeah, well, that's part of the cold, hard truth. You, you know, this is how they insulate themselves from any objections. If you object to their view that that, that moral responsibility and free will are illusions. It's it's wishful thinking on your part. It's that you can't handle you you can't handle the truth. Right. Uh, and they can because they are brave and they face the facts as they really are, even if they don't like them. Uh, now I'm, I, I was tr I was thinking about why this is happening all of a sudden now, as opposed to ten years ago, when no one was a skeptic about free will and moral responsibility, and you never saw articles like this. No, and in I've, fact, when I was in graduate school, even, uh, I think that that the few times that I was able to chat with people about free will and determinism, and I actually became interested in it, well, we can talk about why just early in life, because religions often have something to say about this, right? But, uh, you know, so my interest carried over into into this, my this, official study of psychology and i thought it was i remember reading uh william james um who you know wrote this tome um on psychology in like 1890 and yeah. he had a whole lot to say and i remember trying to talk to the people in my in my graduate area about about this question they were just they they called me a philosopher in, but they meant it in the pejorative you know sense and uh, as, mo as most people as most people do right um and i i just really couldn't couldn't get them to talk about it now you can't get them to shut up about it it really is an interesting case you know the 
one of the reasons you and I do this podcast, if we, as we've said before, is be- because there seems to be more and more actual overlap in in academic philosophy and psychology, and we're talking a lot more to each other. If and this is just the one topic that I think probably is the best example of this. Right? There's just I, a I lot of you know there are professional interests in this topic on both sides in in a way that there just wasn't before. Well, so here's my explanation for that, uh, and here's my explanation for this explosion of articles of these people who all of a sudden now come out as skeptics about free will, uh, and, and I want to see what you think about it. So it seems like every time there's a major new scientific advance, uh, the view that there's no free will goes front and center. People are either defending it. Uh, like Harris and Coyne and all the and all their followers, or people are denouncing the science, uh, the scientific advance, because they worry that it takes away our free will. So, for example, Newton develops his laws of motion and the whole idea of a clockwork universe, fully deterministic, and then all of a sudden, uh, the Enlightenment philosophers, especially Voltaire and and Diderot, come out as uh, denying free will, denying moral responsibility. Darwin, next major scientific advance, arguably, comes out with his theory of evolution. He comes out as a free will skeptic in his notebooks anyway. Uh, everyone worries now that, uh, that that we can't have free will if our behavior is determined by traits that are designed only to promote individual f- fitness. Um, and, the, and then behavioral like, are clear link to the to the um, to the morality of it which is something that that i think you you'll i'm going to ask you to clarify the link between the two but the the darwinian position clearly was a threat to free will and a threat to to morality human morality and so what's happened in the last 10 years is this explosion of interest both in the popular media and in among scientists uh, and psychologists is the neuroscience right um, so what's the common thread here is all of these scientific advances just provide further evidence, further reason to feel very comfortable being a naturalist, right? Not believing that there's no such thing as a non-physical soul or a non-physical, non-material mind. And this is where free will is supposed to come from. So every time there's this new thing, and the latest is neuroscience, neuroscience which says we're just – our decisions are just come down to molecules and neurons that are firing in our brain. Uh, again, no non-material soul. So all of a sudden that makes the threat to free will seem tangible and, and real. Right. It's like every once in a while in the last 100, 150 years, someone comes along and reminds us that our brains are made of atoms just like everything else. And uh, to the extent that this is is true um, and, and, you know, now we have we have cool magnets that can show us brains in action. This this reminder seems to to just thrust humankind into the realm of matter in motion. And this this. Now, the question – one question is, does this naturally uh, undermine uh, free will for everybody? Well, um, right. That's the key question because as you say, that's a great term. It's a right. reminder, 
right? It's not a discovery. It's not a we discovery. We didn't discover. Neuroscientists didn't tell us that our brains were atoms and neurons and molecules. We knew that already. Right. Uh, I always try to tell uh, my students that, uh, you know, the, the first time we learned that the brain was deeply implicated in thinking and behavior was when, when the first person had their head removed. Um, right. <laughs> something magical <laughs> about it stopping all of a sudden <laughs> in a way that it doesn't necessarily when the hand is removed. <laughs> right. At least, at least not hand- for a couple hours. <laughs> it was, yeah, right. When the hand is m- removed, depending on which hand uh, you start, you stop jerking off as much. Uh, but yeah, when, it's, the, it's you know. Challenge, yeah. <laughs> or at least you have to switch hands, which you know, uh, I, I, this is a little bit off topic. <laughs> this is a this is a whole other source of discomfort. Uh, uh, but but so so yeah, I I agree. You know, uh, uh, you in your list of of all of the people who threaten free will, you didn't mention Freud, maybe on purpose, but but I think. Oh Freud, no, that's a great example. Yeah. Just purely because I forgot. Yeah, right. But you know, he he uh, the way that he spoke about uh, human cognition and the human mind was so deeply threatening to free will, not just because um, we were animals, right? But also because uh, if there were, if there was an influence, like if there was any malleability, it happened in the first few years of life. And there you're, you're also clearly not, but, but he was fond of saying biology is destiny, right? And that, that I think captures something nice about he also, and here is where I think a Freudian theory might be more of a threat to free will, um, even if you think that free will can be realized in a naturalistic way, that it doesn't require a, a soul or a non-material mind. But um, but Freud, as, as I understand him, was claiming that a lot of our – the reasons that we behave aren't the reasons that we think we're behaving that right. way. The, our true motives are different from the motives that we think we have. And that really does cut deep because if I'm deliberating in a way to, to make a choice, which – and we'll talk about this. I think there's still reason to believe that I do that. Uh, but if the choice I end up making has nothing to do with the deliberation and has everything to do with the fact that my mom once spanked me right. or, you know, that I wanted to have sex with her or something like that, then, uh, then I think that, that – then it would be hard to defend if, – if that was true for most of our decisions, it would be hard to defend any kind of even recognizable notion. Oh, good. Yeah. So I want to get back to this because this ends up being a, a, a nice foreshadowing of, the, of one modern empirical strategy to, to undermine free will, which is modern psychological experiments that show that um, your choices can be determined by the experimenter in a way that's completely opaque to you. Right. So this is the Labette and Wegner stuff that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well that, that well that and just just social psychology experiments that 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 manipulate say the order of presentation and and you give reasons for for your choice, but in reality it can be demonstrated that that uh, that It's cuz there was a dime in the phone booth. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. That, yeah. And so uh so you, this this gets at 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 uh, I think an important distinction about uh, about how much how much conscious deliberation is required in order to, you know, and I think that this, there's something about the lay belief in free will that requires knowledge about the reasons and the causes of your own judgment. But yeah, I, but and I, I think yeah. this is, I think this is my colleague Eddie Namias has 
developed a view that said that's essentially there are threats to free will, but the threat isn't just showing that, as Coin says, we're meat machines or that everything that you know that that we do boils down to molecules and neurons firing. That's not the threat. The real threat does come from social psychology, those kinds of experiments, the situationist experiments, uh, anything that might show that our deliberation was had no causal effect on what it is that right. we do. And that that's a different strategy, and I I think you're right. It's uh, actually a, a those are are interesting and and novel findings because just knowing that our brains cause our choices is just as you say a reminder we knew that well as you said actually right. but uh yeah it's just uh this is something that we already knew and was Jerry Coyne and was was Sam Harris were they dualists before uh, neuroscience came along and showed them, no, of course not. They were naturalists from the very beginning. Uh, right. I, would, I, would, I would bet a, 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 a million dollars to a hundred, not that I have, <laughs> that they were <laughs> well, naturalists be, already yeah. and that this was, this is just, it has rhetorical, uh, as our colleague Josh Green uh, likes to say, it might have some rhetorical force. I don't know if he's put it that way, but his point is neuroscience makes it even harder to be a dualist. It makes it even harder to be what philosophers call a libertarian about free will, to believe that we have some sort of metaphysical power to do otherwise. Uh, But but that, again, uh, was such a minority position amongst scientists and philosophers. I mean, it was practically non-existent, I imagine, among scientists and, and and a minority position that was made fun of uh, among philo- right. the majority of philosophers. So let me uh, let me talk about this other th- that threat, this idea that we're meat machines. I think the irony of it is that what that boils down to, you don't even need any of these scientific advances, and at least according to the philosopher Galen Strawson, you don't even need naturalism. Uh, he thinks that there is an a priori argument against free will and moral responsibility. A priori uh, meaning that you don't need to know any natural facts about the world to make this argument. He thinks it's a logical impossibility because it would require somehow creating your own self, being self-caused, uh, and, and, and whether – you know, you have a soul, whether God gave you some sort of soul, you still can't create your own soul, right? right. And there's, the, there's, there's a, uh, a hand-wavy uh, way to to just chalk up free will to the soul. And I think what what Galen Strawson is pointing out is is that, no, you can't just say that there's a soul and therefore it's possible. You got to at right. least describe how a soul could do that too, right? You got to... So here's a Nietzsche quote that sort of summarizes this that I that's also kind of he, he was colorful. <laughs> yes, that, Nietzsche yeah. was a philosopher, uh, and he said about this concept of free will, it is a sort of rape and perversion of logic. But the extravagant pride of man has managed to entangle itself profoundly and frightfully with just this nonsense. That's my yeah. bird, that's my bird clock, by the way. I don't know if that's coming through. No, I could not hear that. Okay, good. So, uh, wait, wait, wait. Let, let me oh. keep going, right? Uh, the desire for freedom of the will in the su- superlative metaphysical sense, which still holds sway, unfortunately, in the minds of the half-educated, 
the desire to bear the entire and ultimate responsibility for one's actions oneself and to absolve God, the world, ancestors, chance, and society involves nothing less than to be precisely this causa sui, this self-caused entity, and with more than Baron Munchausen's audacity to pull oneself up into existence by the hair out of the swamps of nothingness. Uh, <laughs> swamps and, of nothingness. That yeah. that is just a book title waiting to be used, and, or or a porn title, and it, but whatever. <laughs> the swamps of nothingness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, let, twenty, 20 uh, minutes yeah. in, let, let let me actually take the initial step that I think I I would have taken before reading any real philosophy about this, mm-hmm. and now I and. And I, I think that maybe uh, any sufficiently reflective, perhaps Westerner, yeah. and we can talk about this because you just you just released a book about cultural differences in this, and and I think that's an important question. Um, here's here was my intuition. Uh, you have to have the ability to, and I'm going to be u- using language that I learned afterwards, but I think this was my intuition. If okay. I can't possibly have chosen to do something other, other than what I did, right? Um, then it seems cr- not only cruel but wrong for you to think that I should be blamed for it if it was if it was a wrong thing to do. So, uh, so and we naturally, I think, divide human actions into things that that people could control and could have, could, you know, had some degree of of control over, and things that they did not at all. So. If I trip and I hit you, yeah, um, you might be annoyed, but you can't – and you might even be angry at first, but you would right. just say, oh, uh, now, I, now that I realize it was an accident, I can't possibly think that you're a bad guy or that you deserve to be punished or blamed. Sure. I can, I can think maybe that you should, you should be a little bit more vigilant or you know, perhaps you were just born handicapped or something. But if I swing and hit you and say, I think, Tamler, you are an asshole – uh, there, there, it just smacks of purposeful, intentional, controllable um, action, and so and th- this is all super simplistic, obviously. But uh, that's my natural category. I thought there are things that we deserve blame and praise for that are controllable and in- and intentional and purposeful, and all of those things that I might lump together in my naive psychology, and there are things that you have no control over. So, people who are completely crazy. Uh, and do something they were born that way they can't help it but people who just go go out of their way to plan it they deserve it so i think everybody has this intuition that there's this distinction and um and so and so from a naive sort of you know perspective the first time i really thought about what it would mean that 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 uh maybe genes and environment completely explained my behavior the reason that it naturally led me to, to think that moral responsibility didn't exist um, was that, oh, maybe it's all in that second category of sort of accidental stuff. Right. It and, all and comes I, down to luck. Things yeah, that are ultimately all, it, outside of your control. Yeah. And, and maybe thing. I'm just being so so obvious about this, but, but I think it's worth talking about just that basic like pre sort of philosophical intuition that that uh, if you t- if what you're telling me sounds like it's all about luck and and as you say it doesn't really it, that luck can be um an act of god right by luck we just mean something that's completely obviously outside of your control because so, so 
being raised religiously uh, when I when I was told that God had complete control over everything um, and he knew the future and he created everybody the way they were. I thought it was pretty mean then to blame some like to to yeah. cast someone into hell forever and punish them. And so so I think that at some level, this is a basic that, that we might have a basic conflict the minute we start talking about the sources, the causes of human behavior and that that this is a natural step. And now. But so 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 I think that's that's definitely the pull. And it has intu- a lot of intuitive plausibility. It has a lot of intuitive force. This is why you, you're, you're capturing probably better than I did why I was a skeptic, because I thought in the end that luck, it all comes down to luck, how you are. You know, you don't have any control over your heredity. You don't have any control over your early experiences. And then those things uh, together um, determine exactly how you are going to shape your uh, how you're going to shape your character, how you're going to shape your future experiences to the extent that we can do that at all. And so, and, and this is why, so, you know, little Tamler and little David, right, are thinking about these things. Um, and by little, I mean, you know, 24 <laughs> or whatever. And uh, and so we're thinking about these. We both have that initial step of saying, well, well, look, uh, it doesn't seem as if it seems as if there really is something um, there. There is a threat here to freedom in the way that that most people think um, exists. And so uh, so now what do we do? You became a skeptic and said, well, this, there's no freedom. There's no moral responsibility. Um, and I, I took the opposite tack, which was because I was naturally led to the conclusion that, that moral responsibility couldn't exist if freedom didn't exist. I said, no, I really, really believe in moral responsibility. And so if that makes me tr- have to find a way to keep freedom, like embrace freedom in some way, I'm going to try my best to find whatever way I can to preserve freedom. Because what I really cared about was moral responsibility. To me, that, right. that's what it boiled down to. And I, I think that's not... what it always boils down to. Right, right. So, so while those are two separate questions, right, whether there's freedom and whether there is actually moral responsibility, they're really intertwined in people's, both in people's lay thinking and in sort of the history of the, of the concept, the philosophy of it, right? And the debate really centers on that because with the exception of some libertarians and, you know, people who have some sort of religious commitments, no, we, we kind of agree about the kind of freedom that we have for the most part. Right. Uh, so the, the question then is, is this kind of freedom enough for moral responsibility? And that's, I think, where there is a lively – Debate both within myself and uh, and you know between philosophers and psychologists and scientists. But but it's funny the way that scientists uh, you you are unusual because I think a lot of scientists just automatically assume they believe if we can't step outside our brain structure like this, well then obviously we can't be morally responsible for our behavior. And then he says, "What's this is coined later on in the essay, what is not justified is revenge or retribution. The idea uh, of desert, of deserving blame or punishment, or as he puts it, the idea of punishing criminals for making the wrong choice. And we should right. continue to reward good behavior because that changes brains in ways that pro- promotes right. more so, good behavior. But, but yeah, it's so this that's... idea that moral responsibility is out. Right. Uh, so and it's I, like and I, used to, I, I make fun of it, and I don't make fun of it, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I look at it 
uh, as as more complex than that now. But I mean, again, I get it because I used to believe it. Right. So so that the view is sort of like, uh, you know, sometimes people do bad things because they were they have a serious mental illness, like they're they're schizophrenic. We know that schizophrenia is is you know we have this sort of modern view of the genetic the genetic component to it maybe maybe the environmental that triggers it um and so when they do something bad what we say well like look we got to protect society we got to keep people from harming other people right um and so but but quarantine exactly put them in a mental hospital and so the view that i think these scientists are, are attracted to is look let's just make all punishment more like a like putting someone in a mental institution right so it's just serving a useful purpose it's, right. but it's either deterring really... other people uh, from committing crimes and keeping this person from committing this right. similar kind of crime again. So, uh, yeah. Okay, so it's the utilitarian defense, which yeah. is, goes kind of hand in hand with the skeptical view. Right. On right. Free... Although, although I have, I have, you know, and you and I have talked about this because I, I'm actually a bit confused about why, uh, why utilitarian punishment somehow is is still justified in the, on this view, but. Um, you know, but, there's a paper by Saul Smolensky that argues the same thing, that utilitarian punishment shouldn't be justified under this view. Oh, good. I need to yeah. point to that to, like, support my arguments. Yeah. This is how academics proceeds, by by, hand, by, by cherry-picking arguments from, uh, <laughs> from, uh, from other people. Yeah. Right. Well, what, would we, what would we do? We'd have to <laughs> We couldn't do that. I, you know, I, I've embraced it. All, all I rely on is that other people are going to cherry-pick articles from the opposite side, and hopefully we can arrive at truth together. From you. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm so, still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh I, uh I to get to to get all of a sudden from from the deep trajectory they were going to a, a more shallow one which which i think is at the end of the day um this question is is a simple one and a deeply a deeply fundamental one to um to any modern human I watch Star Trek. Do you? Did you watch? Were you a fan of Star Trek? No. Do you? You look like you hated it. Then I, I, I don't hate it. I just I had no real interest. <laughs> you in just. I wasn't like. It's not like I was getting all the girls uh, when I was a kid. You're but I wasn't you, like. But, but you a are saying you got nerd. more than me. I, yeah. No, I'm definitely not. <laughs> that would require you having uh, like somehow negative girlfriends, <laughs> <laughs> which was sort of what I had. Uh, but I was still like a normal kid that liked sports and, and normal right. things and didn't like I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons and I didn't, uh, you know. Right. I just had trouble okay. around girls. And I never played. Yeah, yeah. I think that there is some I, level of nerdiness. There, there's different categories of nerds. And, and yeah. uh, there's in the Venn diagram of nerds, the part had no uh, game with girls. There's overlap probably between you and me. I was not I was not a Dungeons and Dragons nerd either, but a Star Trek nerd I was. Right. And I still am. And so I've been watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation recently on Netflix. And uh, one of the characters on the show is Data the Android. And Data the Android is it just represents this sort of leap forward in, in technology um, because he is c- completely a machine. He's a computer. Uh, but he's a computer, uh, uh, you know, unlike any other, because uh, he's, he's the, he s- captures so much of of human cognition, and uh, but nonetheless doesn't have things like emotions or whatever, you know. Um, now, Data was programmed 
Now, he can learn and acquire information and make judgment and all the things that, that we might expect. But at the end of the day, you really, you, when he, whenever he does something, it's pretty clear to you as a viewer that, uh, that this is a result of whatever his creator programmed into him. Like there is just the data program that can be downloaded into data, yeah. his brain, his computer. And, um, and you watching the show and, and he, he just seems sort of like, a, a, a just a really logical human being. Um, but then if, if, if it boils down to actually questioning some really bad or really good action, you, you have to say to yourself, well, okay, that's cool that a computer could do that, but he, he can't really have had any say over this. He's a robot, right? The person who had say over it was the guy who programmed him. Right. And I think that this is what these modern neuroscientists and people who are, are like, like to, to cite this modern neuroscience are saying. They're saying... Um, We'll look at this. We now understand more than ever. It's not just a reminder. It's a deeper understanding of how we're all data. We're all just datas. It's just that our brains, our computers are made of like wet stuff, right? Not dry stuff. But there's another key difference, right? That nobody, there's no conscious designer, right? They all believe that. There's no conscious designer in our case. And right. so there's nobody to share or take the moral responsibility uh, in our cases right. like there is in, to, in, right. in Data's case. To, and the yeah. question is whether that matters, right? Yeah, and I'm not sure. And I think one step is, is to, to blame parents and, you know, for early environment. Um, but, but, yeah, you're right. There, there, is a, there is a natural leap to like, oh, well, that creator, the, the programmer, was a jerk. Because he he didn't whatever he didn't give data the proper ethical subroutines, right? It turns out the data does have like the really proper ethical subroutines, but but uh, and so he always does. Um, the so the, but the interesting thing about about data the android um, that I think is more analogous to what you're saying about Strawson is as you're watching the show, right? You can't help. Going to ask that. Yeah, you it, can't yeah. help but think of him as agentic purposeful intentional and every once in a while when they like crack open his head and you see little blinking lights and you know little chips computer chips you're like oh shit yeah he's a robot but by and large the people who interact with him they treat him just as as they would treat something they get mad at him they can't and and so this is what i always liked about strawson's point was the thing that jerry coin and 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 maybe sam harris and and to some extent josh green are asking us to do is just impossible this is not i mean every once in a while we can say well that guy didn't really deserve it because he was you know he's clearly schizophrenic we can do that every once in a while but even in those cases uh it requires some exertion like some actual change in the way that we normally go about uh, about evaluating people and and, and, and but, but what's interesting is so this is what i you know that was my temptation to say well as a matter of psychology we can't say right. we can't really believe in a lot of cases that the person really didn't deserve blame or punishment, especially in cases where like a family member is harmed or, uh, you know, there's some sort of really uh, personal injury that somebody gives to you. But that's, you know, there's a lot of 
true facts that our psychology won't let us actually perceive. You know, right. we can't see that the lines in the uh, what is it, the Mueller Lions diagram right. are 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 actually the same length. Uh, and we correct so, for it if we're and we correct for it. Yeah, and that's I think their view. That's the, certainly the Josh Green view, right? He says, you know, we see the world as Euclidean geometry, but when we really have to launch a rocket ship into space. You know, we go and we uh, look at the relative general relativity equations because otherwise uh, we are – that rocket is going to crash. Right. Uh, so this is a key step because this is what some uh, – has been a source of confusion for me about the Strassen perspective because I, I love that freedom and resentment paper. And I love it because I think he really d- – he did capture the psychology and I, I sort of have made – I made those arguments um, uh, given psychological findings about free will that we just it's a hard thing to do. And so I always really liked it because I thought it was a keen insight into human psychology. Um, But but so how does he and you get around that problem that why not just say, look, once you know that the lines are the same length, just realize that you're wrong. So why not? The J- Josh Green, Sam Harris, Jerry Coyne view yeah. that like um, there's a difference between saying uh, this is a deeply, profoundly intuitive, uh, therefore it's right, and one between saying deeply, profoundly intuitive and it's wrong. And now that we know it's wrong, let's stop. Let's stop being dicks to each other. Basically, right. that seems like what they're saying, and in, in this weird way, like let's just stop being dicks to everybody and thinking that they deserve what they're what. Right. What, you know. So here's okay. This is a, that's I think the crux of the matter, as you say, and this is where I have come to change my mind. And so good. Uh, I'm glad we got here in part, what's got to be part one. I think right. of our discussion. Right. Uh, the thing about the Mueller liar. Uh, right. For those who don't know, those this is the visual illusion where you have two lines of identical length, one on top, one on the bottom. But on the ends of these lines, you have sort of brackets, arrows like greater than or less than brackets. And so uh, on each side of the top line, there there are brackets that are are the, the arrows are facing inward and the other one facing outward. And it really, really looks like the lines are of two different lengths. I mean, it's you think about these visual illusions, even when you know. Um, that you can't help but see them as different. So you got to take different. a ruler out, right? And actually, look. And, and and right there is the difference. That's that's the dis, dis right. analogy right there. Is that you can take a ruler out and measure them and see that they're the same length. Okay, right. we don't have that kind of independent measurement to determine that somebody really, quote unquote, really doesn't deserve, or as, right. as uh, Jerry Coyne says, really, you know, that this is what's true free will. We don't have that uh, measurement. And when we're talking about moral responsibility, we're talking about dessert, right? What that comes down to, what we is our intuitions, that's all we have. We don't have a ruler. We don't have a ruler right. to tell us what's really right, what's really accurate. All we have is our intuitions. And when you, all you have is your intuitions uh, that will tell you what real dessert is, you now have two choices. Unlike with the Mueller liar two lines, you don't have two choices. You agree once you measure them, uh, okay, they're the same length, right? But we have two choices. We can 
say to ourselves, and I, I guess this is part of the, the Manuel Vargas, who's a philosopher, University of San Francisco view, we can say, okay, actually people really do deserve blame, deserve punishment. Uh, maybe we had some funny, you know, abstract ideas about what, what it would take to deserve uh, blame or punishment, but uh, but but actually, when we uh, when we really consult our intuitions and we really examine how we think about dessert, it doesn't require this kind of self creation or to step outside of your brain or to step outside. Oh, you know, I see. Uh, so uh, the step so the step here is that you just are wrong about thinking that moral responsibility. It, that moral responsibility required this sort of weirdness. Um, yeah. And so, or, yeah. I, I and, mean, yeah. You, and in uh, fact, in fact, is the is the step here that let's just get you to think a bit more about how how you think moral responsibility works, because you'll realize that it doesn't even for you require what you thought it did. Right. right. In the ad, yeah. when you're thinking about it theoretically, when you're thinking about it in abstract terms. Uh, and this is what I take to be Strawson's uh, substantive contribution to the debate, that that's the wrong way of thinking about moral responsibility is in this abstract theoretical way that is ob- that becomes, the, as you closely examine it, obviously incoherent. Uh, but there is a sense of desert and moral responsibility that uh, – in all of our everyday, that is reflected in our everyday interactions, in our uh, natural attitudes, these basic attitudes about us, that uh, while it is open to revision, and uh, and and certainly, you know, I can learn something about somebody that makes me think, oh, I thought they deserved blame, I thought they deserved punishment, but really they didn't. I could learn that so, they so brainwashed. But I won't. But what what doesn't happen is me learning that they're meat machines. Because, like you said, I already knew that. Uh, any all I would have to have for that is a reminder. So it seems as if what you do to say the undergrad in your class, right, when you first present this problem and you pull their intuitions, there is a way in which we stack the deck by saying. Hey, you know how it's pretty obvious that you need control and agency for moral responsibility? Ultimate control and agency. Ultimate, right. Ultimate yeah. control. And, uh, and they say, yeah, well, yeah, like obviously. So, you know, you give the right kinds of examples. Um, and then you uh, you show that, in fact, having this – so you, you link ultimate control and ultimate agency or whatever to moral responsibility. And then you just you just remove this ultimate control. And then they're left with, with like – uh, this this void, and they say things like, "Well, then we can just rape and pillage, right?" Is that what you're saying? And and so we're do- it's it's a little bit like a magic trick for undergrads, and it's funny to do this. I I, I know that you have done this. Uh, oh, totally. You, you can you every- you get them to be first their <laughs> vehement free defenders of free will. Then you give them certain arguments, moral luck arguments, and at least half of them become either very frustrated or they just become skeptics. And right. then and you the, can get, and then the, the, or the trick, after, not, or nihilists, yeah, exactly, you're right. And then the trick is, uh, can you get them to be? Uh, that's a tough one to bring them out of. What, what's once yeah, what's there. funny? What's yeah. funny is that, that they move to, uh, and maybe the maybe this is this is gendered, but, but what's funny is that they move to just accepting that they can just do whatever they want. So <laughs> really I, I've never heard anyone say, "Well, if I have, if ultimately I'm not moral morally responsible." 
uh, then I should just donate to charity all the time because no, no one ever says that because no, that's they're so always like, I should go on like a killing spree, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I just like, you know, get into like climb up some tower and just start picking people off <laughs> right. as if the only thing that's preventing them from doing that right, right now is a belief in physical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really says something about. So what's what's lying directly under the surface here? Like, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I um, always thought this was one thing. I mean, I, I would say I probably made my career not as a skeptic, but as an optimist mystic skeptic right like i i thought look even if we're not morally responsible this doesn't have the dire effects that everybody thinks it has where all of a sudden people are going to go around uh, robbing banks and shooting people because we have plenty of reasons not to do those things right. uh, first and foremost that we don't most of us don't have any desire to do those things yeah right i have right. no desire to rob a liquor store or to go around raping people or killing people or molesting children or anything like that. I, I, it's just not something that I have any inclination of doing. And so my beliefs about free will are not preventing, are, are not all that stands between right. uh, me this, doing right, those right. And there is this just sort of like a, a weirdness to, to, you know, it really is like uh, people are walking around with this, this view that there are all these temptations and that their free will is preventing them from acting on those temptations. And uh, so, wait, if there's no free will, then just give in to all my temptations. But if someone says to me, well, then I might as well just molest eight-year-old girls, then I'm like, wait a second. If that was a temptation? Right. Uh, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> right. I had a professor once who, as an undergrad, we were talking about incest. And this guy was sort of trained in sociology, anthropology, something like that. And I was like, that's just weird that, that, uh, that, that we even talk about this because uh, – you know, honestly, who's like having sex with their siblings or their children? And he he straight in the face said, oh, no, incest is a temptation in any family. And then I thought to myself, this guy has two teenage sons. That's just the, a weird thing to say. <laughs> like you've just revealed to me that it's oh, no, it's deeply intuitive that you might want to have sex with your teenage boy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. But so I will say that I think at some point everybody wants to fuck their dogs. <laughs> that well, uh, uh, only if more, you're being honest with yourself. <laughs> only if they're purebred. I mean, people who have much—that's no, that's just right. gross. <laughs> and also, if the dog is male in Europe, that's <laughs> yeah, disgusting. Well, that's gay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're a man, um, and I, by that I mean happy. So, uh, so, so okay. So now. I really am interested in this question, though. Then, if what we're if what we've done is some magic trick of of analytic philosophy or whatever that that we've we've somehow hinged moral responsibility on this weird view. Um, and again, I think that's this is where I think my research on cultural differences comes exactly into play. I, I think you, this right? is a Western obsession. I don't I, think that this is something that bothers a lot of people right. in a lot of cultures and i and i, and I think, think that it doesn't even and i think that as you correctly point out in in uh the sentence synopsis of your books that other people wrote that i <laughs> i i mean from your deep discussions on the matter yeah. is that it doesn't even bother us in many cases right and so so there are clearly cases in which when you point out that someone didn't have this like tight control ultimate controller agency or even even like the local control and agency over an act we still fundamentally think of them as responsible and they're not that we it's not that weird to say this and so uh but you point out that in other cultures for instance 
um, there are clear examples when you take on the responsibility for the actions of your group, yeah, right, your or, rally, your, or your, your family rally. members, right. Yeah. And there's a real there's a real sense in which you feel morally responsible and you're held morally responsible for, and not in some way that like it's you you let your dog off the leash, right? In in some sort of more diffuse way that like uh, that you have. Uh, you share in the moral responsibility for an action that no one would say you had control over. Right. You just exactly. happen to right. And, and, and and that's not being dicks to each other. I mean, I think no. that that's this is the thing is there are trade offs. And yes, it can allow you say to be retributive uh, in cases where you wouldn't if you didn't have that notion of collective responsibility. But it also allows you to take pride and say the behavior of your daughter, right. and not just because right. oh I taught her that, but because no, exactly, yeah, yeah, purely because way. it's your daughter. Yeah, and there's this weird way in which the the Western view somehow we because we we this this view of control is so ingrained that. That it sounds as if what you might be saying is that well I taught her that but you're right. you're not really you're, you're not. just it's a it's a it's taking pride in a moral way over the good acts of somebody even though neither you nor they would would in any way think that you had that kind of control over their actions and feeling so, shame if they do something bad not again right. because you feel like you didn't raise her right or you but because it's it's your daughter you you feel connected to her or you know your brother uh you feel right. connected to that person in ways that i think also uh make the depth of these kinds of interpersonal relationships possible right, right. and if you're always just concerned with what you contributed to the either good or bad action and that's all you care about well in in some ways then you you lack something important right right and and you know i uh one of the things that i was interested in studying in graduate school was how we use so there is this uh there's this way in which we use the term moral responsibility um as the precursor for blame and praise Right. So you think, OK, you are a responsible agent. And when you do a bad thing, that means you deserve blame. And when you do a good thing, it means you deserve praise. And uh, and we can we you can show that people have a pretty strict, rigid view of local agency, at least again, in, in you know, college, American college students. Right. That, so that when you say, well, you know, the person the person didn't really have control over this, like they they were overcome by a negative emotion, and, you know, that they, they just saw red and lost control. And that's why they did it. And people say, OK, well, maybe they deserve a little less moral blame. But but we don't do that for moral praise. Right. We, yeah. We actually, yeah. No, that's so right. Susan there's Walmart an asymmetry was, there. Though, yeah, there's an asymmetry. Yeah. And, and and we nobody ever says like, well, you can't. Well, sure, he donated millions to charity, but like that's just because he was born with like extra empathy. Like that's not, that's not his yeah. fault, right? Or that's not to um, his credit. Yeah. That's not to his credit, right? Yeah. Uh, we so we we're more flexible with the rules uh, on on the praise end of things, and I think we're probably more flexible even here on the on the blame end of things. It's just that there are these rules to. It's almost like the legal tradition that has so deeply influenced um, our are thinking about blame and responsibility. That, I think that's that, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how does Strawson then, so I am, so we're, we're on the same page about this, obviously that, that we, we use responsibility in a real true deep way. That's not, I don't think it's an error to say that um, even you, that 
it's an important and meaningful thing to say that you are morally responsible for something, even when you don't have the kind of ultimate, yeah, ultimate freedom, right? You didn't self-create yourself. You didn't pull yourself out of the swamps of nothing. And I think that this, and this is what just pisses me off about, about all of these scientists who think that they've stumbled upon this, this novel discovery. I think that they're just wrong about this. And I think that there's, they're often just stupid. They're great people. I don't blame them, but but they're just being stupid. So I, I don't even, and I think that you respect them more even than I do. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, that's interesting that you would say that. Why? I mean, I, the only maybe it's only because I, I was, I was there. You know, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I was there once, and maybe. Uh, but I just think but, that they're being. Dumb but I to really push don't. This. this this thing about the neuroscience all of a sudden being showing, I, I don't respect that at all. I don't even get it. I don't yeah. get why everyone thinks that neuroscience contributes anything of substance to the case at least against Josh free Green, will. Yeah, at least Josh Green admits or says he doesn't admit. It's not like he started and then had a backtrack. He, he just says. Like this is just gonna have like this. It's just cool that we can show people these little light brains lighting up because it will just have this bonus effect that people will think more clearly about about. Yeah, they, 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 those people who are clinging to dualism and libertarianism, the philosophical kind of libertarianism, they're not going to be able to do it once you just show them that uh, right. all this thing is realized in the brain and you can predict it and blah blah blah. Yes, he admits so that that's too- not that's not a novel discovery. That, right. He just thinks right. it has rhetorical power push yeah and I, and i think that what you and i are saying is that it shouldn't have rhetorical power right that, that this is just yeah maybe you can you can uh it should have rhetorical this. power to make people not dualists not dualists but not not yeah but so, not not d- deny moral responsibility because that's a moral claim and if you look at that the josh green article is interesting on that because when he makes the case that if you're not a dualist then you he has to go to a moral intuition about mr puppet this guy who was designed right. like 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 you did with uh, da- d- data data and say well intu- and then he has to say well intuitively he doesn't deserve blame uh, but that's how we all are we're all Mr. Puppets or we're all right. Android for but it but it all rests on that intuition that it, it will rest on two things right it, it rests on the intuition that if you are manipulated into or 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 designed in a certain way uh, then you're not morally responsible even if you deliberate and even if you uh intend to do harm and second that it doesn't matter whether there is a conscious manipulator uh or it just sort of happened naturally that you were put together a certain way um but those are those are those are moral claims those are normative claims how would you test that whether you yeah. can truly deserve blame or punishment if ultimately you la- you don't have and, ultimate control over your character and your actions and that's in that that is what gets me about uh, many scientists working this that they think that this is um, simply an empirical question somehow that uh, right. and, and by empirical question they just mean like, as they actually mean as we learn more about the brain we will learn more about this issue and that's just bullo- that's just bullshit um, I agree but I so I want to ask this there there are a couple questions that I have for you um, and now you pick which one is more interesting uh, one what then so now we can go as you have done, look across cultures and see what their conception of moral responsibility is. How do those empirical findings 
influence this question? And uh, so that's that's one question, which is what what role do, do, does do, ma- just mapping the variety of human intuition on this play, and uh, and in, normatively, but also what what in general you you actually think descriptively is found like yeah. um and the other one is and this this is this might be actually a bit uh too boring but how does strassen really get out of uh out of this and how do you get out of this that we do sometimes admit that people aren't morally responsible how do you arrive at those rules yeah and why if if we can say in some cases that clearly let me let me put a pause on my resentment right um why don't we why don't we put a pause on our resentment across a whole like a really wide set of cases yeah um but i actually want to hear you talk about a little bit about the the cross-cultural stuff maybe all right good but those were both yeah very interesting questions and i want to talk about both because i think both are 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 crucial maybe we won't get to one of them in the in the time that we have remaining for this part of the episode but uh let me talk about the cross-cultural stuff and what i think what i think after doing my research is that when you're talking about the conditions for moral responsibility, the kind of control you need to have in order to really deserve blame, deserve punishment, deserve praise or deserve credit, that there are fundamental differences in how different cultures uh, think about that question, the different cultures' perspective on that question. Um, Some cultures think you need a lot less control than other cultures. Uh, The most extreme examples are the ones where people don't really care whether something was accidental or like in the case of the ancient Greeks, whether they don't care. You know, they did not care if uh, a god gave you all your power and gave you your courage, gave you your uh, your strength, gave you your generosity. That was just, okay, yeah, of course, we're all like that, but that doesn't mean, it never, it, it just never occurred to them not to, to, to think that you deserve praise for those things, and they didn't right. care if uh, a god made you do something bad or a god made you, that was just, well, you still deserve blame and deserve punishment, and they were going to relish that punishment, Right. Right. Uh, so in, in some weird, in some weird ways, like the the evil character, um, it could be just assigned to that role by the gods. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean they don't deserve to be disdained and resented and blamed and though. blamed and punished. And that you don't yeah. just uh, you're not just psyched when you kill them in part because they deserve it. Right. So that's right. the most extreme example. And most of the time, I think there's a spectrum. Um, so that leads me to believe that there's just no if, – if people have fundamental differences and then, you know, in the book I talk about the reasons for these fundamental differences is uh, their ecological conditions and that there are certain ways of thinking about moral responsibility that are more appropriate, uh, that they function better in certain kinds of environments than they would in other kinds of environments. So there's no way you can even say that one – perspective on moral – in cases of successful cultures, that one perspective uh, of on moral responsibility is more rational or better than another perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that some perspectives aren't fucked up and they lead to but, – but it does mean that there is a plurality of conceptions. But are you uh, saying that then – are you saying that there are different conditions for what is a right view or are you saying that there is no right? That there is no objective – objectively correct – view so, 
about the conditions for moral responsibility. That's why, although I regret using this term in, uh, because in the book, um, because I think it's just a, it's just a lame philosophy term, but I, I take a meta-skeptical view because even the skeptics, even the coins of the world and the Galen Strassens of the world, they think that there is an objectively correct condition for moral responsibility that you have to be self-caused or that we're not meat machines or whatever. And I think, no, that is, that's wrong too. So I'm not skeptic. I'm not a skeptic about responsibility like they are. I'm a skeptic about any view that claims to have found the correct conditions for moral responsibility. But there is something that you're saying, and maybe this is just my the lack of precision in my thought compared to somebody who's who's a, who's trained to make these distinctions. But there is something important about saying there are matching there is you you have sort of this matching hypothesis that under some conditions historical ecological cultural that there is a more appropriate view and a less appropriate view but when you say appropriate you don't mean yeah. so right relativism relativism about responsibility might i always wonder why i didn't just call myself a relativist and i think in part it's cuz people think that once you're a relativist about you something can rape and yeah, it's just like, oh, well, then no matter what view you have, it's it's automatically true just because you have it. And uh, and that's not my view. My view is that depending on a certain kind, depending on uh, the ecological conditions, uh, there are certain norms of responsibility that are going to function well in that kind of environment and certain uh Certain and, and, and here's the thing you might say, well, that's just a psychological fact. That's accidental. That's contingent, whatever. But that's all we have. That is all we have because it's those norms that ground our intuitions. And our intuitions is what ground our beliefs about the conditions for moral responsibility. We just so, – So do you really not want to take a stance though about like a culture that sacrifices the virgin to the volcano? Like I do want to take a stance. Reasons. Yeah, I would think that that doesn't do any good. In other words, I think that this is why I didn't want to call myself a relativist. If you have uh, – if, if your belief about something is based on something that's obviously false, if your attitude or perspective on moral responsibility is based on something that's false, then I think, yeah, you have a reason to think that that's a deficient, so it really defective depends, view. It really, but it really depends on – than the truth of of some facts. So, but maybe my assignment is to to actually read what you wrote. Um, but but I I really am curious about whether or not when you say that if it serves this function and there's this this ecology that it might work better in in certain conditions versus in others. It could be that sacrificing a virgin to the volcano works really well, and it's not based on a false belief. They know, for instance, that uh, that so suppose the leaders just simply know that sacrificing this virgin will appease everybody like that, right. that people will get some satisfaction, not because they actually have a metaphysical belief that's wrong, but because their culture has been such that that uh, they they get relief out of ritually sacrificing someone when shit goes wrong. I mean, this is more of a relativism question in general. I know, than I, a, actually, but, than but, a, uh, because I, but let me give you uh, to 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 return this because I don't think my view depends on the broader truth of moral relativism. It just depends on the truth of 
kind of relativism or pluralism about beliefs that concern moral responsibility. There still might be moral truths, objective moral truths out there. Mm -hmm. And as long as they don't concern moral responsibility, then my view is unaffected. But let's look at this idea that the Greeks had, that at least I say they had, which is it doesn't matter if you are uh, designed and or even manipulated by a god, right? You're still, still responsible. You're still responsible. Yeah, actually, uh, when I was what, reading what, that part where, in the where, where is the there's no mistake there. I mean, you could say there's a mistake in believing that there actually are these gods, but believing that it doesn't matter whether you were designed or manipulated to do something, you're still morally responsible. There's no factual mistake in having that belief, right? There's no nothing you can point for to and say, well, that's obviously false. There's no there's no there's no fact they're not aware of. There's it's 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 just a belief, a different belief or intuition about the conditions for what it would really take to deserve blame and punishment. Uh, I don't right. see where they're getting any facts wrong in believing that. You know, it seems to me that that's that's one that you have to defend, not not me, because I can actually say so I can let's for the sake of argument. Uh, and But I think I believe this. There are a set of objective criteria for moral responsibility and people can be wrong about this. And uh, I so I'm tempted to say the Greeks actually in these cases were endorsing a set of criteria that we upon reflection might find to be acceptable and suitable and that the sacrificing the virgin to the volcano people are not. And I think that there are analogs to the way that we attribute moral responsibility um, for people's characters that, that are outside of their control that make sense to us. And uh, I kind of want to cling to the fact that the Greeks just provide an example and this is where this is this was my initial thought when when uh, hearing about your your work on the, the cross cultural stuff, which is interestingly, even though there is this diversity, there is this sense in which the 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 concept is broader than we just think we think it is. And uh, when looking across these cultures, like say the Greeks, they're they're using this they're more likely to use this version of the criteria for moral responsibility. Um, and we're just less likely, right? In, the, in some sort of, you know, uh, uh, we all intuit these things. It's just that we emphasize them differently, kind of John Haidt. What, what yeah, I mean, I, right, you could look at – you could. You don't have to look at cross-culture, uh, across cultures, although obviously I think that's instructive. But you can look within yourself and find a lot of different <laughs> attitudes deeply, really. and intuitions about moral responsibility. I mean I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and different ways in which we think about it, different ways if we consider the question abstractly or in concrete scenarios, uh, in cases where our emotions are triggered uh, and our emotions aren't triggered, uh, you know, you'll find that we have different ways of approaching this problem, and 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 it's hard to figure out which one is the right one. Right, and and you just want to sort of sidestep the right the question of which one is the right one. Yeah, and figure out yeah, for yeah. which one best reflects your values. That's uh, the second part of the book is saying, okay, like if, uh, let's say I've established that there's no objective fact of the matter. It's still a really interesting question, um, which is the view that best reflects my intuitions and my all things considered intuitions and my values. And there in the book I come down tentatively – with the position I used to defend, which is skepticism, 
but I don't know. If, and you can sort of tell in the last part of the book. It's it's I I don't even know if I believe that that's true <laughs> about me. You know, right. never mind right. true for people in South Korea or, you know, the ancient Greeks or the Icelandic right. honor cultures um, or, you know, the Mediterranean honor cultures. Like, never mind them. Like, I'm not even I, I, I don't think I really believe anymore that that's true of myself, even though officially, I guess I sort of said it. <laughs> You're on, on paper. But it's like even at the end, my last paragraph says something like I, I was hoping and I thought that I would come to a more confident conclusion. But that just didn't happen because I'm really torn on this issue, even from a subjective perspective. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I must say that I am as well. Maybe it's a good a good time to to end part one here because uh, then then we can talk about uh, next time we've talked about how what kind of empirical facts don't really seem to matter, um, and maybe next time we can talk about the ones that do seem to matter. Yeah. And some some work by your colleagues, I, I think that I, I really would like to talk to uh, that that boils down to the, uh, an attempt at investigating whether people are so-called compatibilists or incompatible yes. or, or incompatible. I have some strong because opinions sounds, about that. Yeah. And it sounds as if one of the things that you're saying is that you, you sort of re- even reject the, 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 the categories to begin with. Right. That, that, uh, well, it's, it's possible that people as locally really are all one way or, or another way. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's unlikely. So, yeah, let's talk about that. And then the last like thing it. that I would like to talk about in part two is this uh, this question about the implications of denying free will and moral responsibility, because some of your colleagues have taken up this question lately. And uh, this is something that philosophers have talked right. about a lot. But now uh, they're running some tests. And so you have John uh, Schuller, Schuller, Schooler Schooler. and Catherine Kathleen Vaz. Vaz. Yeah, I didn't know how to uh, pronounce either of their names. Uh, uh, Roy Baumeister, is that pronounced correct? Baumeister. Baumeister. You're you're, you're 0 for 3 here. Is this, Um, uh, (laughs) is he German? Baumeister? Yes, he is. Uh, He's very very Teutonic. That explains a lot. Yeah. And then, uh, and their experiments showing that people are more likely to cheat or less likely to be altruistic if they. Ah, that's right. They have confirmed. They have they have confirmed what we have long uh, feared. observed observed in our class that if you tell people that that uh, that yeah. everything is determined, they actually would rape and pillage. Right. Um. They they are right about this. They they would go about and and it sounds like you don't agree. So. I yeah I well I, yeah but let's talk about that. <laughs> that, that all right so tune in next time for uh, free will part two. Uh, where we will settle the matter. Where we will settle all of these questions once and for all. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.